Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I'd like to welcome you out to the opportunity to have a stimulating discussion about conventional or alternatively unconventional oil and gas development in Canada and the opportunity that it is, is being presented. Um, my name is Cameron McLennan. I'm grateful to be your moderator today. And of course, you're aware that this is a Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs Forum. We're fortunate to um, have Stephen Duncan, his uh, colleague today, uh, Marcus Ermish, is uh, with him. We're, we'll introduce them shortly. But first, I'd like to remind you that, of course, uh, those of you who are here, if you'd be kind enough to uh, contribute $10 for the lunch that's going to be so ably provided by Country Kitchen Catering, and if you could commission someone at each of the tables to gather those funds. We would like to remind you that SACPA is a volunteer, nonprofit organization that relies on the contribution of members and session attendees to continue its work. <clears throat> of course, we're grateful for the support of our partners, the University of Lethbridge, Country Kitchen Catering, Shaw TV, and the Lethbridge Media. The format today, as is the norm, will be for a presentation of 25 to 30 minutes. We'll break for lunch, and at about 1 p.m., we'll create the opportunity for those of you who are here to present questions by uh, presenting them in a kind and considerable, considerate way to our guests. Now let's talk about um, what we're about. Our guest is Stephen Dunk, professional engineer. He's currently the manager of BC operations for the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. He will discuss from an industry perspective what unconventional oil and gas is and where it's been found. As well, he'll introduce the techniques used to develop um, unconventional oil and gas, including hydraulic fracturing, fr fracturing, or also known as fracking, and horizontal drilling. There will also be some discussion of industry practices and some regulatory examples for use of water in fracks and protection of surface aquifers. <clears throat> Mr. Dunk um, has over 25 years' experience in the upstream oil and gas industry, having worked for major oil and gas companies in numerous field and office-based technical and management positions concerning reservoir development, facility construction in Canada, Indonesia, and eastern United States. He has a degree in petroleum engineering from the University of Alberta. The organization with which he is employed, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, represents over 100 companies that explore for, develop, and produce natural gas, natural gas liquids, crude oil, oil sands, and elemental sulfur throughout Canada. CAP member companies produce more than 90% of Canada's natural gas and crude oil. Key areas of responsibility include operations, regulatory issues, land management, natural gas competitiveness, species at risk, and managing and working to improve industry stakeholder relations. Without more, let's give a warm Lethbridge welcome to Steve Dunk. Well, thanks very much. 
Um, first of all, um, I would like to thank you for, uh, for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to speak to this uh, forum this afternoon. I understand this is an organization that's been around for, for a number of years, 40 years, somebody was telling me at the break, and you've had some, uh, some very engaging and some very informed uh, speakers, and I, I hope I'm able to sort of, uh, sort of meet, the, meet the standard that's been set. So during the introduction, um, you know, the, it, we explained a little bit who CAP was. For those of you who are, you know, like to read things rather than listen to things, it's here on the board. We represent over 100 companies and basically uh, represent produce, the producing end of the company. So the role of our members is to get the, the natural gas or the oil from the ground sort of to the, to the pipeline. Those are, the, those are what our members do. And we produce about 90% of, uh, of the oil and gas for, in Canada. So at CAP, um, our mission statement is to enhance the economic sustainability of the Canadian oil and gas industry in a safe and environmentally socially responsible manner through constructive engagement and communications with governments, the public, and stakeholders. So we really see it as a, as a balance. You've got this little Venn diagram here between that, that you'll see sort of as the header for a bunch of my slides. Um, so we see it as a balance between energy, economy, and the environment. And as far as energy goes, um, oil and gas are strategic Canadian resources, and I'll give you a, a slide or two on that just to show that they are strategic and show you where, where Canada is at. With regards to environment, um, we have a strong record of environmental performance in our industry. Um, there's very effective regulatory oversight, and there's increasing public expectations, and that's, uh, we, we recognize that. That's one of the reasons I'm here today. With regards to the economy, I promise you I won't talk a lot about the economy today, but a lot of folks don't know that um, our sector is the largest single private sector investor in Canada. The example I've got is in 2009, we invested uh, $35 billion into can Canadian operations. So we're a national industry with national benefits. So I understand um, back in February, um, Mike Bruisehead from the Blood Reserve uh, came to speak to the group here about uh, hydraulic fracturing, and perhaps some of you are here in the audience. And I also understand that uh, Maud Barlow came to speak last week in the evening. So uh, I, I wasn't able to, to listen to either of those uh, presentations, but um, I'm really pleased that SACPA has, has this type of forum to have these kinds of dialogues, because I think it's really important for, for, for citizens, for, for people to, to be engaged in these dialogues. Um, the public wants to understand how, how industry uses natural, how we use water, how, where we get our water, how much we use, how we protect aquifers, and, and we, we accept that responsibility as industry to inform the public how we do it. We, have a, we are committed to a sustainable supply of water, um, to using a sustainable supply of water. We are committed to our operations not impacting aquifers, and we have a strong regulatory environment in Western Canada. So what I'm going to talk about today, engineer, I have to put an agenda up, sorry. Um, basically, what I'll be talking about is very briefly sort of energy demand and supply. I'm going to be talking about hydraulic fracturing today, but I want to make sure we have some context. I, I'm going to sort of go from the high level talking about energy demand and supply, why it's important. I'll talk about unconventional gas, and I've got to hear oil too because it's really sort of the same concept. It's about the rock rather than about the fluid. What it is, how we develop it what I call well construction, and that's how we drill our wells, whether it's conventional or unconventional. And then I'll talk about hydraulic fracturing and water and some of the challenges and opportunities. Um, 
I understand we've got questions afterwards. Is that how it works? And what I'll do is I'll try and stick around a little bit. I've got Marcus and I have a bit of time after the after the question period if people want some further questions. I always start with this slide. And this slide here, there's, there's two slides that are very similar. One is the world, uh, world demand for oil and gas. The other is North American. I think I've used the North American. Yes, I have. So this was done by the uh, International Energy Agency. And what this shows from about 2005 and forecast to about 2035 is the demand for energy and how that energy is supplied. So red is oil. Yellow is natural gas. The gray is uh, coal. Uh, whatever color this shows up on the slide is uh, nuclear, and then the blue is other. So if you do the math, and I've done the math, um, oil and gas produce about 65% of North America, or indeed the world's energy supplies. And oil, gas, and coal produce about 85%. So there's, there, is, there is a need for renewables. Uh, Marcus and I saw some, some, wind, some great big windmills coming down, and that, that need will continue. But as you can see, oil and gas are probably likely to hold so, somewhat of the same percentage of, uh, of, of supply for the energy demand. Canada is already a pretty big producer of energy. I think most people are aware of that, but perhaps not. We're in the top 10 world oil producers. We actually are sixth in the world in production of oil. And we're third largest producer of natural gas and the largest exporter to the U.S. of both oil and natural gas. So as I said, the, the, the title of my presentation is Unconventional Gas, an Opportunity for Canada. And traditionally in, in Canada, there's been a lot of what we refer to as conventional gas. In Canada, as you just saw by the last slide, we have a lot of it. We're the third largest producer in the world. But in the last few years, say the last five to ten years or so, there's been a movement towards the more difficult to produce gas, which is called unconventional gas. And over the rest of the presentation, I'm going to explain what the difference between is between conventional gas and unconventional gas. And then I'll show, give you a, one slide to show you a sense of the opportunity, why, why does it matter? And then I'll talk about some unconventional reservoirs and how we develop them. So um, this here, uh, Chris Adams is a fellow with the Ministry of Energy and Mines in, in B. Oops, that's interesting. I didn't do that. Is, uh, I must have bumped the table. Um, the BC Ministry of Energy and Mines. And he calls unconventional gas natural gas contained in difficult-to-produce rock formations which require blah, 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 blah. I have a very simple definition, and you'll see why in a minute. Basically, the gas is essentially trapped in the rocks rather than the pore space in the rocks, and that's the difference between conventional and unconventional gas. So basically, I think most people are aware that, that gas didn't gas or oil didn't form in great big pools under the ground. What, what you had is here in Alberta and, in fact, over most of Western Canada, you know, a lot of the, the, what is now land was covered by shallow seas, and those shallow seas were full of all kinds of life, plankton, algae, all that type of thing. So eventually sediments piled on top of those, those, uh, th that life. That life died and created natural gas. And that natural gas will actually migrate. It'll actually migrate up through over millions of years. So the dinosaurs were, what, 60 or 70 million years ago? I'm not sure. So, so from 100 and some odd million years ago to 70 or 60 million years ago, that gas kind of migrated up. And, I, and basically it migrates up until it finds a rock that's – until it can't migrate anymore because it's got too tough a rock. So I've got, I've got some very expensive – 
visual aids here. I have a jar of jelly beans, and I have some licorice. Okay, so basically, what's happening is you've got all these this natural gas that's migrating up, and it kind of comes into my jelly beans here. And the jelly beans would be a sandstone or a limestone. And I know you can't see the jelly beans from the back, but you know what a jar of jelly beans looks like. There's lots of spaces in between the jelly beans, so it'll keep going until it hits a shale, which is like my licorice, and it stops, right? So it'll migrate up, and then it'll stop, and then it'll stay there. It'll stay in, in the pore spaces in those jelly beans. Until we come along with a rig, and we get rid of the gas, and then we move the rig off. Really kind of a cool graphic. I didn't make it. So there are, a number of, there are a number of types of rocks, and I've actually got a couple examples in a, in a bag here that I can show you after. That, so there's a number of types of conventional rocks that you normally find oil and gas. So again, the, my crude analogy that, that you know, looked like the jelly beans here. You've got, you've got sandstones, which are basically, you can imagine the pore spaces between the sandstones. You have limestones, and you have dolomites, which are sort of a type of limestone. And basically, the place for the gas is in the pore spaces. So it, it's in the porosity in, in between the grains. So that's how that's how you that's the reservoir for conventional gas. But unconventional gas is found in the shales. Now those of you I don't know if there's any shale outcrops around here but those of you that have seen shales some people call it slate shale slate is sort of a type of shale it's a shale that's been metamorphized. You can imagine there's no there's not many holes in there, right? So what happens is that the, the natural gas or the oil is essentially, it, it's virtually, we call it adsorbed. It's almost stuck to the surface of the rock. So basically, that's why it doesn't flow, because it's the cap rock. So don't want to get too technical, but an engineer, I can't, res can't resist a couple, of, a couple of terms. So we talked about the pore space. That's the place for the gas to reside, the gas or the oil to reside. Well, of course, it has to flow. So we have a we have a term we call call it uh, was invented by a French civil engineer by the name of Darcy. So we name the, the terms after him. Darcy is sort of the ability of the oil or gas to flow through the rock, and your conventional oil field rocks, the ones that you would find mostly around here, because I think there are oil and gas uh, development here. Don't worry about what Darcy's mean, but they'd be anywhere from if it's a high highly permeable rock, ten Darcy's to one Darcy. Really low permeability rock, 0.1 Darcy's to 10 Darcy's. So, it, you know, it, it actually it can flow without much help. If you look at your shale gases or your, your unconventional rocks, there, the Montney Shale is one in northeastern BC. There's the Barnett Shale in Texas, which you may have heard of. Good shales have what we call nano Darcy's. So these are milli Darcy's, nano Darcy's. So like 0.001 Darcy. So their orders of magnitude, their ability to flow is orders of magnitude less than it is in a conventional rock. So just to give you a comparison, that's what sidewalk cement is. So this stuff is tighter than sidewalk cement. So that gas or oil is pretty much stuck to that rock. So how do we get it? I have a colleague of mine, a guy by the name of Basim Faraj that I used to work with at Talisman Energy, and he, um, he had access to some grad students, so he got some grad students to do a little bit of work. And what he did, um, he basically got them to work with coffee, believe it or not. So all of us, well, not all of us, some of us come down in the morning, you make your cup of coffee, right? So you, you grind up your coffee, you, you know, stick your water in, you push the button, and it takes about a second for that coffee to, to come. So... The process for making coffee is basically the hot water touches 
the coffee beans, right? It, it actually soaks the, soaks the coffee out of the coffee beans. So what he did is he took 16 grams of coffee, 200 coffee beans as whole beans, and he took 16 grams of ground beans. The surface area of the whole beans wasn't very much, actually, right? 0.02 square meters. But when he ground it up, it was 800 square meters, again, orders of magnitude higher. So when his students sort of pushed the button, in about a second, the water looked like coffee with the ground beans. With the whole beans, it takes about 40,000 seconds or 11 hours for that water to actually come through and make coffee because the surface area is so small compared to that. So the idea with unconventional rock is the same. The, the oil or gas is sort of trapped in the rock, and basically, if we're going to access it, we have to create lots of surface area. So how do we do that? So uh, we do it two ways. We do it a technique called horizontal drilling, which, again, we've been doing for a number of years, but, you know, advances in technology means we can go further than we have in the past. And the other one is the one that folks are interested, which is fracture stimulations or fracs. So, so with horizontal drilling, basically what we do is we drill a vertical hole till we get to the, to the zone of interest, the zone where the shale is. And then we actually, and I can sort of explain after, it's hard to explain up in front of an audience, I can explain how we make that bend. We make a bend and we can drill out anywhere from two to 3,000 meters in a horizontal direction. Now, again, this is just a cartoon, but that's gonna be about 2,500 meters down and about 2,000 meters out. So what are we trying to do there? Remember, I need surface area to get that oil or gas. Well, normally in a vertical well, if you didn't have the horizontal section, well, the, the area of that vertical well is like 10 inches, right? So you've only got a little bit for that oil or gas to flow. If I put that hole out 3,000 meters, I'm exposing my, my, my well bore to a lot more surface area. The other thing I'm doing is I'm basically hydraulically fracturing the reservoir. So... Hydraulic fracturing has gathered a lot of interest, and it's, I know it's gathered some interest in this forum. It's not a too new technology. It was first performed in 1949, and myself, who don't consider myself that old, was on my first frac in 1982. So it's, it's a technique that's been around for a long time. Um, there was a ERCB spokesman, Bob Curran, um, who was quoted in the Calgary Herald uh, last, last, or two weeks ago, saying there's been 167,000 frac jobs performed in Alberta. So, so the techniques to, to frac haven't changed significantly. Um, basically, we've been doing this type of, of frac in the past. What's changed a little bit is the setting. Now that we've drilled horizontal wells, we're able to do multiple fractures along that wellbore. And again, why are we trying to do it? We're trying to create surface area. We obviously don't pulverize the rock like my grinding of the coffee beans. What we're doing is we're basically creating pathways. We're, we're basically pumping large volumes of water at high pressure. We're creating a fracture network, almost like a, a three-dimensional spider web. And then we put sand in the water to keep those fractures open. Because if you didn't, you're, you're, you're a mile deep here for, well, for you kilometer folks. You're a couple of kilometers deep. You're, you're, you're rock will close up again unless you prop it open. So these fracture networks we're creating are like a, a sand grain or two wide. So I had an engineering uh, professor that said the fundamental question of life is so what? So, so what? So why do we care? Well, basically why we care is because there is a lot of unconventional gas in North America. 
Um, basically, this is a, a somewhat crude map of North America, and there's a, there's a number of fairly major reservoirs. So just to, to orient yourself, that's British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan. That's the U.S. So up in northeast B.C., we've got the Horn River Natural Gas Basin, the Montney. Um, those natural gas basins do come down here into Alberta. I think we'd be somewhere down around here in Lethbridge. The other really important ones that you may have heard of, the Barnett Shale in Texas and the Marcella Shale and the Utica Shales in the eastern U.S., so as I, I think I mentioned, basically, whereas before we were talking about having enough natural gas maybe for 20 years, now we're talking about having a natural, enough natural gas for 100 years. And of course, this is where we're producing our natural gas, and that's where a lot of the market is. That's where New York and Philadelphia is. So the folks that are producing it here have a lot shorter distance to, to go than we do up in, up in Canada. So... One of the questions that uh, we get asked uh, as industry quite a bit is um, how does industry and the regulator ensure that the fluid that we use in the wellbore remains in the wellbore during drilling and completion operations? Now, whether you're drilling a, a conventional well or an unconventional well, we always start the same way. Not particularly fond of this slide. I'm going to have to see if I can get a better drawing, but this is the best I could come up with. What, what we often start with is we don't even start with the big rig. We move a smaller rig, similar to a water well drilling rig. And we'll, those of you that uh, have agricultural-type operations and drill water wells will be familiar with the type of rig we use. We'll often start, if the, if the ground is somewhat un unconsolidated, we'll start out by drilling a hole about 20 inches and putting a, a culvert in there. And I'm, you know, that might be how some of you guys actually you know, do your first stage of your water well drilling. So we do that a few hundred feet down, and then we actually take that we pump cement down that culvert and up the side, so we've got a seal between that culvert and basically the, the ground around it. Then we move in the big rig, and again, when I give talks like this in places like southern Alberta, you've all, I'm pretty sure you've all seen uh, big rigs on the landscape. So we, we bring a big rig in to drill our main hole. Drilling is actually, in some ways, a very, very simple process. You've got a bit... You put the bit in the pipe, you turn the pipe to the right, the bit grinds the, grinds the rock, you put another piece of pipe down, you keep on going. There's one other thing that we do as we're drilling, there's several other things, but one other important thing that we do when we're drilling. We also pump fluid down the pipe as we're drilling, and that accomplishes a few things. It basically brings those drill cuttings to surface, because you can imagine if you're drilling two kilometers down, you're going to get a lot of drill cuttings unless you bring them to surface. It also provides cooling and lubrication for the bit, and it also provides what we call a filter cake. It actually helps keep the hole straight. It actually, so that's, that's part of what we do. We actually always do this, whether you're any, no matter where you are in Western Canada or the world. We essentially start off with a hole. Now, the, the diameter of the hole is going to vary a little bit depending on where you are and how much production you expect. But you're going to start off with a hole that's going to be somewhere between 12, 10 and 12 inches in diameter. And you're going to set that hole down below the lowest known aquifer, typically 600 meters, maybe 650 meters. If there's an aquifer lower, you would set it lower than that. You drill that 20-inch hole, and you put steel pipe in it. Again, you pump cement down the steel pipe. It goes up the annulus, the space between the pipe and the, and the, the rock, because it's rock at that point. Then you start drilling your main hole. So you drill your main hole to your depth, of, to your zone of interest, steel pipe, cement to surface. So if, you're, if your water aquifer is up here or here, I guess, you've essentially got 
two, two steel pipes, two uh, cemented in two surface. And I don't know if you can see it a little bit better than that one. I, I, I'm struggling to find drawings that actually show it without being too technical. So, um, I, I said earlier on that the public wants to understand how we use water and how water resources are protected. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because I've got a few more minutes, right? You bet. Okay, so first of all, um, we're committed to using a sustainable supply. We're committed to ensuring our operations do not impact aquifers. And we have a very good track record of that. And we have a strong regulatory environment in Western Canada. So the two areas of potential concern is how much do we use and how do we protect the aquifers. So how much we use, it's going to depend a little bit. You, you know, you heard me talking about unconventional rock. Depends on how thick that zone is. Depends on how many fractures we want to make. But we'll use anywhere from about 3,500 cubic meters to 15,000 cubic meters for a typical deep well. And that varies a lot. For a shallower well, we might use 20 cubic meters to 100 cubic meters. All jurisdictions in Canada regulate water use, whether you're in Alberta, B.C., Saskatchewan. So according to a, a report done by uh, Natural Resources Canada, um, industry uses one, uh, industry, um, that is uh, oil, gas, and coal combined, use about 1% of, uh, of industrial water use. Now that's, that's a good number, but to tell you the truth, when I'm speaking to an audience like this, what you're really interested in when I see these, these big irrigation systems is how much are you using in my area? And that's, that's, that's a fair question. The regulator regulates how much we can use. They're going to vary that depending on the conditions in a, in a season. And industry over a number of areas has funded some studies to see how much water is available. So this is a typical multi-stage fracturing job. In those tanks is water. We've got two types of trucks here. We've got the, the basically the blender trucks, which blend the water and the sand. And we have the pumper trucks, which pump the water down. I always don't like to show that picture just by itself because it gives the impression that you, it's going to look like that for years and years and years. When we're all done, and again, you're in southern Alberta, you probably don't need a picture like this. This is what a typical natural gas well looks like. Yeah. So the other, the other thing with regards to water is people are really interested in how much potable water we're using. So industry is actually doing a number of things. Um, we get anywhere from about 25% to 50% of our water back. It's salty when it comes back because the ocean deposits is what essentially oil and gas is, right? So it's salty when it comes back. So we're recycling as much as we can to reuse it. We're also using what we call deep saline aquifers. So there are other geological horizons that have salt water in them, and we're using that to frack. And again, I think I ref referred to some, some, some studies we've done to see where the, uh, where the water is available. So the other question that we get asked a lot is with regards to isolation of groundwater. Um, this here is, is actually to scale. So here's a typical... So I talked quite a bit, and I'm not going to show the slide again. The, th that surface casing is sort of up here, right, with the cement. This is your main string of casing, again, with cement. So people say, well, can you get it horizontally or can you get it vert vertically? Excuse me. Well, this is where we are vertically, again, to scale. We're at about 2,500 meters, and your water well is typically at a few, sorry, I switch units, a few hundred feet, 30 meters, I guess, uh, 60 meters, I'm not sure where the, uh, where the typical water wells are here. So 
I, I talked in the slides about the, the reluctance of the rock to give up the oil or gas. Well, to go through all those layers, I, I mean, it, again, it took 70 million years or 100 million years to get to there. You know, it might take another 100 million years or, you know, to get there if it can. If there's impermeable layers, it won't get up there. So I'm not a, I'm not a regulator, um, and um, I encourage you if you want to hear more, hear more about the uh, oil and gas regulations, there are a number of regulators that might be willing to speak to you here today. But again, all regulators, drilling and completion operations, that's the, the pipe and the cement is regulated by the, that's the Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan. Frac fluid, I'm going to talk about that in one slide, next slide if I may, is about 99.5% water and sand. Um, this is the, the most recent quote I've got. I've had some people say as low as 98% water and sand, but essentially the, the non-water and sand components are anywhere from a half to 2%. And all chemicals, of course, that we would use are regulated. So here's the... The, the slide that I just got from uh, some my colleagues over at the Canadian Society of Unconventional Gas. And I apologize if you can't read that. that I couldn't make it any bigger than that. So you've basically got your water and sand, and then you've got the chemicals that we use. But essentially, what there's three main purposes for the chemicals. One of them is we have a, a friction reducer, because you saw all those pump trucks. Well, it takes a lot of horsepower to get that past the friction of the pipe. So we need to reduce the friction with a, with a surfactant, a soap-type material. We have a bacteria inhibitor. So in other words, just as you use chlorine in your swimming pools, your public swimming pools, we use a similar type of um, inhibitor because you don't want bacteria growing in the water when it's sitting in the formation. And we use a demulsifier, and again, that's just to make it easier to pump. So again, as I said, not a regulatory expert, but I thought because I was asked to, I would sort of give one slide at least on, on some of the regulations. So... This is a slide, I apologize, it's a slide for BC because I'm the manager of BC operations, but speaking to my Alberta colleagues, the regulations may not have the same, the same names or numbers, but the regulations are the same. So we're regulated right from when we get the water right through to our production operations. So we're regulated as to how we drill that pipe, sorry, drill the hole, put the pipe, put the cement in. We're regulated in how we use the water and how we handle the chemicals, how we consult for that matter with, uh, with, with stakeholders. So there are a number of, of regulations in place. So I had to finish with a couple of slides um, that were, I call challenges and opportunities. I didn't want to end off with a regulatory slide, particularly me not being a regulator. So, so my question was, um, you know, uh, unconventional natural gas resources and opportunity for Canada. Well, you know, won't surprise you. Industry guy says, yeah, it's definitely an opportunity for Canada. There's, there's a lot of it. We're, we've got a solid track record. We're very good at it. We've got a strong regula regulatory environment. But there's some challenges. And again, that's not the purpose of this talk, but I thought I'd leave some of them with you. We're, it, it's expensive here in Canada because a lot of our operations, not so much here in Lethbridge, but in the north, they're expensive. We're a long ways from where the markets are. Commodity Price volatility is just sort of a fancy way of saying natural gas prices are low right now. Um, upward pressure and capital operating costs. We all live in Canada these days. There's always upward pressures on all of our costs. There's increasing environmental expectations on all industries. And again, we accept that responsibility and we accept that expectation. Similarly, increasing social performance uh, expectations. That's why we do things like come to talk to you guys. And demographics. Um, you know, you're an oil and gas guy. Most of them are going to have gray hair like mine that come to talk to you. We, we, 
demographics, and I look around this audience with apologies to this audience, the demographics, we're getting to be an aging society here in Canada. We're trying to get more young people into the oil and gas industry because it's an industry with opportunities, but we need more young people to actually help us develop those opportunities. And there are lots of opportunities. We've got a huge resource base. We have a well-established infrastructure. We've got pipelines. We have the rigs. We have everything we need. Next door to a very large market, the U.S., very good technically, strong regulatory environment, proven track record. We do have existing people capacity and skills. We need some more, but we've got some darn good ones. And we have a generally balanced, you saw those three E, balanced policy and regulation between energy, economy, and environment. And we're a pretty resilient industry. Any of you who've, who've seen us in the past is, you know, we're, we're pretty good at, uh, at what we do, and we, we're pretty good at riding the economic cycles. So thanks very much for your time. We'd like to thank uh, Steve for his presentation. We'll invite you to uh, consider his remarks as lunch is provided, and we'll reconvene at about 1 p.m. for some questions.